The year was 2010, and it was November 2010, and the soccer championship of the world was going on in Houston, Texas. Don't know if you knew about it. For four-year-olds, tadpole soccer at Second Baptist Church, and my oldest, now 15, was four. This is his first sports experience, and I was helping coach this soccer team. I know nothing about soccer, but age four, we could handle it. And they had won every single game and in the championship game, and they won the game. They were undefeated. Great way to start out your sports career. And afterward, the coach or the head coach got all the team together and gave them a pep talk and got excited about winning this championship. And then he began to hand out trophies. And he started in alphabetical order, and the T's were at the end. And so started bringing the kids up, as a good coach would do, and talking about the how each player contributed to the team and presented them a trophy and everybody clapped. And then my four-year-old gets up and he goes to receive his trophy and he stands there and he gets his trophy and then he starts kissing it. And my wife and I are looking at each other like, I have no idea where he learned this. And all the parents are looking at us like, hey man, where did William learn this? And so I remember, he's looking at me, he's giving me those eyes right now. Because I didn't ask him if I could do this. And we're walking to the car. I'm like, hey, man, nice job. Nice job with the whole, you know, accepting your, your trophy. But I've got to ask you, buddy, like, where did you know? How do you know to do that? Like, when you get a trophy after winning the championship, how do you know to do that? I'm thinking he saw it on TV. He saw it with another kid. He saw it somewhere. And he's like, well, Daddy, I learned it from you. And I'm just thinking in my head, like, I, I have no idea where in the world he got this. And, I, and then it hit me. I remembered this old golf clip, this old golf clip that I'd won some tournament, and I was kissing the trophy. Imitation. Imitation, they say, is the best form of flattery. In this case, maybe the best form of accountability. See, kids watch what we do. And they do as we do. We watch other people, and we do as they do. We read biographies about people to be inspired in their lives. We watch how-to videos on how to do things, and we imitate those. We take our cues from mentors and people around us that we watch. We all imitate. Who do you imitate? Who do you listen to? Who do you follow? And where has that imitation led you in your life? See, Jesus said a few things about imitation. He said, follow me. The apostle Paul said some things about imitation too, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what you find in the New Testament, all the way through the New Testament, is the authors of the New Testament calling us to imitate Christ to put on Christ, to be like Christ, to be Christ-like, to imitate his humility, his service, his compassion, his willingness to forgive. If you've not been with us, we've been in the book of Romans. We've been in it for a while. We're in chapter 15 now, and we've seen, as we've perused the book of Romans, some gospel essentials. The first 11 chapters of Romans were these gospel essentials. What the things that don't change, 
And the thing that doesn't change is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe in, that we're unified on. But in view of that, we're called to, for that gospel, those truths to affect our relationships. And we get to chapter 12 and we see how do we live this gospel out in our lives before God, before people in our own church, before the watching world, before our enemies. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about our relationship to the government. And then for the last two weeks, we've been looking at not essentials, but non-essentials. How do those of us who are more free, more free to pursue things, how do we live amongst people who are more limited, who have different convictions in their conscience and limitations? How do we live in that? And so we've been looking at non-essentials, and we come today to the culmination of Paul's thoughts about non-essentials, about how we relate to one another in a way that the gospel unity is still preserved, that we can still not major in the minors, which we always tend to do. And he comes to this culminating thought, and it's as if he is giving his closing argument as a lawyer And he comes down to one thing. And it's kind of a simple thing, but it's profound. How do we live in unity amongst ourselves with differing opinions on all kinds of different things that are non-essential? And his answer is imitation. Christ-likeness. See, the foundation of Paul's defense is be like Christ. We're going to look at that this morning. See, imitating Christ ultimately produces a glad worship of God. This is what we're going to see in this text. In the community that we're in, and it kindles a flame gospel mission. Because, see, the aim of the church is not just some faux unity that we come together in, or it's not even the mission of God. The ultimate aim of the church, the ultimate aim of your life is to bring God glory that he is due his name. So turn with me to Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. It's page 949 on the Bible next to you on the, on the chair. And we're going to see the imitation of Christ and its result in two specific ways that Paul draws out for this church in Rome who has Christian Jewish people in it and Christian Gentiles in it. And how are they going to get along and how are they going to unite for the sake of Christ in their community and on mission. Let me read it. Romans 15, 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Here's the invitation. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, look at it, hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may once with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, un, to the circumcised 
to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's Israel. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, Messiah, will the Gentiles hope. And look at this beautiful benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So two specific ways that Paul is, going, is calling these Gentile and Jewish believers in this Roman church to have unity to the glory of God by imitating Christ. Two ways in which they should imitate Christ. Two ways in which we can imitate Christ as well. The first one is this. Like Jesus, lay down your rights and carry the burdens of others. Pick up others' burdens and carry them. Look back at the text with me at verse 1 there. We who are strong. So Paul is saying, I'm part of that group. I believe that meat sacrifice to idols, that was the issue in the previous chapters, remember. I believe you're free to eat it. Even the Old Testament law says no. The New Testament says kill and eat. You're free Eat it. Paul is identifying himself as the strong. We who are strong have an obligation or a responsibility to bear with. And and maybe you're thinking this idea of bearing with means I've just got to put up with these people even though they're kind of weird. I just got to tolerate people that have their own limitations. That's not the idea of bear with here. The idea of bear with here is to carry, to pick up that burden, not to tolerate it, but to pick up that burden and to carry it for that person. The failings of another, one who hasn't, whose knowledge and action hasn't caught up to their knowledge yet. I don't just tolerate these people and their ways and their limitations. I've got to bear that up myself. You catch that? Bear with is not tolerate. Bear with is carry, take on. Why? Look at it. Don't please yourselves. What's the the foundational purpose that, that Paul points back at? Let each of us not please himself, but please his neighbor. Four, look at verse three. Why? Why is this? Verse three, Christ. He points back to Christ. Imitate Christ. Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a quote. This is a quote from Psalm 68, verse 9. And this quote is referenced no less than five times in the New Testament to speak of the sufferings of the Messiah and to encourage and instruct us to bear with the failings of others, to, to serve other peoples, to carry what they need carried. It's interesting that he would quote this Old Testament passage that's used in that way. You see, you think about the life of Jesus and you think about his compassion 
to put away his own rights. And guess what? That started when he went from heaven to earth. Consider Jesus, the perfect son of God, eternally existing in glory with his father and the spirit. That's a pretty cool place to hang out. And he came to a broken world and lived amongst, amongst us. Why? To bear our sins. The Bible says he bore our sins on a cross. The best example you could see for not pleasing yourself is Jesus, that he laid down his rights and he took up our sin upon himself. Philippians 2, Paul uses it in this way too. If you've got a Bible, flip to Philippians 2. You've got to see this. Maybe you know this text. Philippians 2, Paul has some commands for this Philippian church. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. He could have stopped there and just kept giving them commands and gone about his business. You just need to do this, but what does he do? He points back to Jesus. Look at it. Let each of you not only look at your own interests, but also the interests of others. Having this mind amongst yourselves, he grounds it where? In Christ, which is yours in Christ. Who, so he points to Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He laid it down. He took his rights and he laid them down. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he became a man, the God-man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, not just in his life, but to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, Jesus laid down his rights and he laid down his heavenly privileges and he came and he bore your sins and he bore my sins. And before we get into the application of this, so what does that look like in your life? We got to stop just for a minute. Do you believe this? Do you believe the truth of the gospel that says to us, you can't carry your own burdens. You've got to lay your burdens and your sins down and let Jesus carry them for you. He's done that on a cross. Do you know that beautiful, incredible truth? Have you believed in that? Do you trust in that, that Jesus laid down his rights and died on a cross for you? Because there's no way... If you've not made that decision, that you can take up your cross and follow him. But if you have, how are you living this thing out? What does that look like in your life? And the reality is this. Oftentimes we have to pursue that. We have to pursue laying our rights down and taking up our cross. But oftentimes in life, if you've lived any amount of time, what you know is this. It just shows up on your doorstep, doesn't it? Sometimes you don't sign up for living this out. Sometimes God just puts this kind of thing in your life where you've got to give up your rights. 
where you've got to carry the burdens of others. Remember when you, many of you came down the aisle and said, I do. Before you said, I do, you said, for sickness or health, for better or for worse. Marriage is a great opportunity to lay down your rights, and sometimes it just comes upon you. Maybe it's because your spouse has been sick and you've had to take care of the family. And then if you have kids, you just, this is just kind of built in, isn't it? You're, you're laying down your own rights. You're carrying other people's burdens. I've got a lot of great plans in spring break that I want to pursue, but I've got kids and I've got a wife and family comes first. God builds this into our lives. So whether you have a sick spouse or an aging parent or have children or spouse, here's the reality. God ends up building these things into our life to help us grow and to bring him glory. So the question is, how are we moving towards or how is God moving us towards just the rub of, of, of laying our rights down? Perhaps it's with someone near you or close to you or in your church that God has put in your life in which they just have more limitations than you. And you may think they're silly, but you're going to lay down your right, as we talked about last week. When you go out to eat, the friend of yours who's been in AA or has struggled with alcoholism, that you might not drink around them. Giving up your rights. And so, so Paul shows us this biblical example from the Old Testament. And then he kind of takes a little cursory move to talk about the Old Testament specifically. Look at it in the, in the Word of God that gives us this instruction because this would have been hopeful for Old Testament folks or New Testament folks that Messiah was coming, Psalm 68, 9. And so he takes a little jaunt, and I'm going to try to connect the dots a little bit. The reproaches on those reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, y'all, this is talking primarily about the Old Testament. When you see former days, written in the former days, was written for what? Our New Testament, New Covenant people instruction. What do you do with the Old Testament? You got a Bible reading plan right now that you're going through and you're struggling through the Old Testament? The Old Testament is written for your instruction as well. There are truths in the Old Testament, even as new covenant Christians, that God wants to use in your life. So there's instruction. And, and beyond the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, that through what? Endurance and through, encourage, I love this phrase, encouragement of the scriptures, that we might have hope. Listen, God has given you his word to bring instruction to your life. You think you need a little bit of instruction in the world that you live in right now? But how you might live and understand what God wants and desires and thinks in the world we live in? Do you need some encouragement? And you can find encouragement from the community. You can find it in a lot of places. But this is God's word. And it is meant to encourage and build up. And you find yourself needing some endurance to go, I have no strength left. The word of God gives you endurance that produces, did you see it? Hope. Are you in his word? This is God's word to you. And you know, we often go to other places. And some other places are really helpful to go to for encouragement. A friend, 
brother or sister in Christ. Those are all God's grace and God's means to provide us encouragement and hope. But it's the central place that you come, the word of God. And even in the church, this gets downplayed for some reason. If you want to know how to trigger a pastor and, and make a pastor upset, Find other pastors who tweet or quote things that downplay the scriptures and their importance in life, and that triggers me. So don't, now what's going to happen is y'all are going to send me things, and I'm just going to get upset. There are people in my life that will turn on certain uh, Christian um, TV shows or places just to see me crawl, just to see me get upset, but I'm not going to name names I don't like doing that. I don't think that's healthy for the church. But there's a guy um, who, would, if I told you his name, you would, you would know his name well. He's a pastor on the East Coast, has a huge church. But he's talked in the last five or ten years about unhinging the Old Testament from the New Testament, meaning that we just, it's, it's Old Covenant. It doesn't, God is mean in, in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he shows us grace. And we just need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. And that makes my, I look at this text and I go, this is for our instruction, this is for an encouragement, this is for our hope. And just a few days ago, somebody sent, somebody triggered me, somebody sent me a tweet of this guy. And let me just read you the, 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 the tweet. Sorry. The Christian faith, think about this. Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And I just want to scream. So, So where do you discover the identity of Jesus of Nazareth? Where do you discover that? Where do you discover the accuracy of the person and work of Christ? That's crazy. Sorry, I'm preaching. No, see, God's word, you can't separate Jesus of Nazareth from the word of God. That's how you know him. It's for our instruction. It's for our encouragement. It's for our endurance. It's for our hope. Be in the word. Be a people rooted in God's word. And then he comes to a conclusion here about what laying our rights down and carrying others' burdens produces. Look at it. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. Look at what it produces. Being like Jesus, imitating Christ, and laying our rights down and carrying others' burdens to live in such harmony with one another in accord With Christ, that's an important phrase. That together, you see it? Harmony, one another, together, that you may be with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a oneness and unity that is produced by Christ's likeness. That's produced by laying your rights down. Maybe you're the free in the room and you're going, ah, I know that Christ has set me free. I don't want to lay my burdens down. I want to live free. I want to do what I want to do. That tends to produce conflict in your relationships in a church. But when you're willing, when we are willing as a church to lay down our own rights, and whether it's mass, no mass, jab, no jab, whatever it is, 
that the way we interact with others honors Jesus, and not some faux unity way, by the way. I mean, we live in a world that kind of puts up a unity flag and waves it around. I mean, some of the people don't even know each other. They probably wouldn't even want to be in the same room with one another. There's this faux unity that's in our culture. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a unity that comes because of Christ, that he brings us together as one And those things are way more important. That thing, your identity in Jesus, that you know Christ, makes you have unity with people in this room, even though you might differ with in all kinds of ways. That brings you together more than all of those differences put together. Do you see it that way? See, the ultimate aim here, if you see it there in verse 6, is what? It's not just unity for unity's sake. It's that God might be glorified. Do you see it? That there, God receives glory from our unity, and that unity is produced when we lay it down, when we carry each other's burdens. Notice up on the stage for a minute, and some days we have more things on the stage, so, so we, got, um, we often have a piano right here, right? And sometimes back here we have a drum set, just imagine. Sometimes over here we have a bass, we have vocals, we have a guitar. We have all kinds of different instruments on this stage. But they have to produce a harmony to make sense. But what would happen if somebody on the drum said, hey, we just need three drum sets up here. Everybody else needs to get off the stage. What's that going to sound like? It's going to sound like the Muppets. What's that dude's name on the Muppets? It's been a long time. Animal, thank you. That doesn't sound right. We just have, you know, a lot of cowbell over here. Like we got just the piano. Just the vocals. No, there's, there's diversity. Amidst the unity. We don't have noisy gongs up here. It has to come together. And by the way, that coming together, ask anybody on that worship team, takes time. It takes effort. That's why they're here at 7 a.m. when you're still sleeping. It takes time and effort to create harmony with all the different instruments that are put together. And what's the purpose up here? That God might be glorified. That we come together as a church in one voice and glorify God. See, one of the ways we glorify God is through unity, which happens when we lay our rights down and our burdens we take up of others. But there's more than an example here. That's the first six verses. There's more than an example. You see something else. Paul gets more personal in verse 7. Look at it. He says, for therefore, look at it. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So your second idea here about imitating Jesus is this. Because Jesus mercifully accepted you, accept other people in the body of Christ. Because Jesus has mercifully accepted you, accept others. What did Jesus do for you in spite of you? Here's the picture I have. I have the picture of being on a street as a blind beggar. 
that's begging for money, that's begging for food, that doesn't have any. And Jesus came and brought me into his house. And he cleaned me up. He gave me a shower. And he put food on a table. And he took a chair. And he extended it to me. And I got to pull up a chair at the table of Jesus as a blind beggar. That's the picture of Christ accepting you and accepting me undeservedly, mercifully. We don't deserve it. And because we don't deserve it, here's the thought here. If I'm sitting at that table because of God's mercy and his grace, undeserved, and Jesus decides to bring somebody else into his house and clean them up, And give them new clothes and bring them to sit next to me at the table. Should it be my impulse to look at that person and go, why are you here? Who are you? No, my impulse ought to be, praise God, he brought you in as well. So just as Christ has welcomed you, accepted you, received you in spite of you and me. Receive, accept, welcome Other people that might might look different than you, might act different than you, might have a different personality than you, might have a different political sign in the yawn, in the the lawn, on the front. That's hard for me. Somebody who crosses their T's and dots their I's just a little bit different than you, welcome them to the table because of God's mercy. See, God's mercy kills any status or position that we have, that we think we have. You catch that? His mercy kills that. We don't have status or position. He did this with his disciples, didn't he? They came to him and said, hey, when you come to your kingdom, how about you give me this spot? Jesus is just like, I don't even have the right to do that. I'm not giving you a special spot. You're here. Remember what he did to the Pharisees? Pharisees who would always go around to the synagogue seeking the place of honor and sitting in the place of honor at the table in the synagogue or going out in the streets and wanting people to show them honor, to treat them like their religious varsity and everybody else's JV. Woe to them is what Jesus said. See, God's mercy kills any status or position that we think we might have. No, accept one another is what Paul's saying. He's saying accept one another, Roman, Jewish, Christian. Accept one another, Gentile, Christian, who might be stronger than the weaker brother who's a Jew, who still is trying to keep the law. Accept one another, even with all your junk. Accept one another because of Christ. That he's brought you to the table. See the gospel, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We keep saying that over and over and I hope you hear that over and over. And the outworking of that is some things like this. Anybody who comes through that door that we welcome them. That we're hospitable to them. That we care for them. Baggage and all. That we love them with the love of Christ which this church does in exceptional ways. Listen, accept doesn't mean agree. We've already walk through that some. It doesn't mean agree with. 
doesn't mean that we don't have good discussions about all kinds of things. But just as Christ has accepted you, accept other people who know Jesus into the family. And we've noted these big ones, especially in this text between Jew and Gentile. That's a racial thing or even a class thing. We could go on and on, but I think the subtle things in in our world, and those are surely significant. Look around. Those are significant things. But I think the challenge here about accepting other people really is more subtle than that, isn't it? It is in my life, I think. It's more subtle. It's thing, people who walk in the door that maybe have more baggage than you. Eh, I don't know. You, you catch what I'm saying? We accept them with all the baggage that they have. Or maybe the person who's put together, too put together on the other side of that. Do we accept them? Different personalities, different likes, different hobbies. I'm not saying we're all going to be best friends. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that as believers in Jesus, that we receive each other, that we accept each other, that we encourage one another, just as Jesus has encouraged us and accepted us. And look, keep looking at the text, though. It goes further than that. It's not just about the community of faith inside But he he looks outward at the gospel mission, I would say, of the church. Look at verse 8. He's become a servant to the circumcised, that's Israel, to show, here's why, God's truthfulness, number one, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And third, so God's been faithful to the people of Israel to give them Messiah. And third, he's done that. He's brought this people, Israel, for the purpose also Of what? That the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy. So God wants to use his people Israel to bring about the salvation of all the rest of the world. You see it all the way through the Old Testament. They're supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations. And he gives four different references. Look at it here. Four references. Therefore, and they're not really in chronological order if you want to say it that way. Therefore, I will praise you, verse 9, among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a reference from 2 Samuel where David and his army has, this is the song of David. And he has defeated Gentile armies and they're hanging out right there and he's praising God. So the Gentiles are among the people of God hearing about God. And then verse 10, it says this, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is the song of David from Deuteronomy chapter 32. So they go from, see the progression, among the Gentiles to with the people of God. And then look at verse 11. And again, praise the Lord. Now it's direct. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. They've been brought in. And let all people extol him. That's Psalm 117, which we read earlier. So this is Gentiles worshiping God. And look at even further the progression in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, which says the root of Jesse will come. Even he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So here you have, here's the, here's the big picture. Why is Paul doing this? See, God's plan has always been for the nations always been for the nations. The Messiah came, not just for the Jews, but for all 
the nations, that they might believe. This informs the way we think. It ought to. It ought to inform the way we think about our mission as a church, not just our community, but our mission to reach the nations. But the chief end, the chief end of God is not just the Great Commission. The Great Commission is, a, is, the, is the means by which people become worshipers. You catch that? See, God's mercy not only kills status and position, God's mercy also should kindle our heart to reach the nations because God's ultimate aim is that we worship him and we know him. It's interesting to me as application here, it's interesting to me that the context of what we're saying is about squabbling, about getting along with one another in the church And then Paul goes to the example of Jesus and how he lays down his rights, how Jesus accepts others, and then he starts talking about the church's mission. In a sense, what he's trying to do is he's he's trying to get them from looking down and navel-gazing about their conflicts within the church and see what God is doing in the world, in his world, and seeing what he wants them to do in their world. Man, I, I don't know another time in my in my Christian life where I wonder how distracted the church has become about squabbling about non-essentials. Squabbling about non-essentials. This is what they were doing back then. And you know what Paul's instruction is? Lift up your eyes and look. Accept the person. Share the gospel. See, I think one of the challenges the last couple of years has, has brought It's as if the the railroad tracks and the foundation has just been kind of popped out of place and the church in some places has has gone from toward the mission and the purpose of seeing people come to know Jesus and be a united community that is best, our best apologetic. And it's almost like the the railroad tracks has been popped up because of the craziness of our world in the last couple years. And many churches have taken this road of activism over evangelism. See, the church's mission isn't activism and just waving a flag. And listen, there are plenty of things to talk about. Hear me say that. There are plenty of things in our world to talk about that we need to talk about that we as the church ought to press into, but we cannot lose the mission of the church in the midst of activism. We have to be about Evangelism, we have to be about winning souls, the power of God to change. Listen, however you want to look at it, this world's going down. That doesn't mean that we're pessimistic about the world that we live in and the structures of the world that we live in, but the ship's going down, and the kingdom of God will come, and our mission has to have the gospel, the truth of the gospel, in the center of it. And we care about the things of the world, but we're not trying to recreate something. God is going to recreate this world. And there's going to be a lamb that's sitting on a throne in Revelation 22, Jesus. And there's going to be a mountain, and there's going to be a river flowing out of the city of God. And we will worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation in unity. 
And so our message and our mission as the church is not necessarily primarily activism. It's evangelism. It is sharing this good news. And you know what that does? It gets us out of arguing and fighting, infighting about non-essential things. That will preach. About non-essential things. So we got to stop arguing with the saved and start preaching to the lost. See, because Christ has mercifully accepted us as beggars from the street and gave us a meal and a place at his table, we want to share that living water and that bread of life with, with other people. We want to lay our burdens down and take up our cross and follow him. Earlier, I shared with you a quote. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. But here's the thing. Imitation is more than that. Imitation is something so much more than that. Imitation is one of the best ways in which we learn and grow. See, the best teaching is not just taught, but it's caught. And your Savior doesn't ask you to do something that he hasn't done himself. He's laid his rights down. He's carried the cross for you and for me. And he's freely received and accepted you and brought you into his family, brought you a seat at the table so that we can do that to others. And not only do that to others who come to the table, but, but, but to go outside and tell people about the Savior and bring them into the table as well. Your takeaway today is simply this. C3, put Christ on display in your life. And you can't do that without his sustaining grace, without his spirit working in you. But as he cultivates that in your heart, put on Christ. Put Christ on display. Lay down your rights carry others' burdens, accept the blind beggar on the street, accept that you were that and that he brought you in, and accept others who come into the fold, that we might see people come to Jesus and worship him as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ has done what we can't do on a cross, but he also enables us to do something in and of ourselves that we don't have the strength or ability to do. We confess this morning that we often want to take up our own rights and freedoms that we think we have because of the liberty that you've set us free, and yet you call us to serve. You call us to serve one another and care for one another where we are. And you also call us to accept others around us even that might be a, a touch different than us in the family of God, that the light of the gospel might go forth to a looking world that is just dying to see Christians who brag about an amazing Savior to see their unity, to see Christ's likeness in us. Lord, let it be that the watching world in Magnolia and Tomball and the Woodlands and 
Conroe and Montgomery sees us put Christ on display in our lives, sees our church putting Christ on display. We love you and thank you for your word that is so clear. It's also so challenging. Work on our hearts this week to put Jesus on display. In Jesus' name we pray.